We're going to be back in Matthew chapter 5 again this morning. So you can turn there in your scripture. And uh, we're going to keep on trucking through the Beatitudes this morning. And uh, we are trucking uh, in the sense that we're carrying a lot. There's a lot to go through, but we're not trucking in the sense that we're going too fast. Uh, I think we're going uphill, but it's a good climb. It's a, it's a good ascent as we read and study the words of Jesus in uh, Matthew 5. So I'm going to read again, starting in verse number 1. And this morning we'll read through verse number 4, which is the particular one we'll look at today. Matthew 5, verse number 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless us and bless our understanding of his word. Father, thank you again for these words. They are few, but they are full of meaning. They are full of life and hope. They are full of, of joy and satisfaction that, as we just sang about, only you can provide. So may we pay attention. May I pay attention, Lord, as you speak to us. And know you will in your word. May we have spiritual ears to listen. May our eyes be open to have understanding. Give us insight. And use these words of scripture to fuel our lives as we serve you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good news for the mourners. Good news for the mourners. Last week we saw that the good news for the, the poor in spirit or the broken is another way of speaking to that. Well, this kind of goes hand in hand with that theme. If Jesus' first blessing or his first beatitude was for those who realized their, their deep spiritual condition and their low position before him, then it's fitting that his second beatitude or his second blessing is for those who realize that, recognize it in themselves, and also in the rest of the world, and they mourn over that. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read this passage any number of times, blessed are they who mourn, blessed are the mourners, and you've probably thought about it in the terms of the general experience of mourning. That is, mourning over the loss of a loved one, mourning over a sad experience, mourning over sickness. And while it is certainly true that there is comfort in Christ, in the God of all comfort, for those kinds of experiences, I think it becomes apparent when we study what Jesus is saying here compared to what the rest of his, his sermon is here, that that kind of mourning isn't just exactly what Jesus is speaking of in this passage. Just like Jesus made it clear in the previous verse that the kind of poverty he was speaking about was spiritual in nature, we find that the same is true of this kind of mourning. In fact, these first two Beatitudes then become two sides of the same coin. You could see it this way. Spiritual shipwreck or poverty, both personal and corporate, leads to a spiritual yet very real mourning on the part of those who recognize it. 
If, if spiritual poverty is, is the existential, that is the condition, then this mourning is the reaction or the response to that realization. Now, maybe an example will be helpful before we even really dive into the passage. Now, it may be July, and you may be sweating later on this week or today, even as you work in your yard or your garden, but I want to jump to Christmas for a few minutes here. Uh, I want to go to Luke chapter number 2. And there's a familiar story here about a man named Simeon. Let me just read this narrative. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is a familiar text. Simeon was one of those righteous remnant of Israel. And in fact, he kind of represents for us a group of people that we don't really read a ton about in the New Testament. Much of Jesus' teaching and focus was on rebuking the scribes, the Pharisees, the the Sadducees, the religious elite in their classes. He was rebuking them for their, their legalistic view, their pretentious attitudes, their hypocrisy. But we have to remember that those groups did not represent all of Israel at that time. There were many, like Simeon, for example, who were faithful, patient, and they were waiting. And what was Simeon waiting for? Well, Luke tells us clearly that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, if you followed along in your own Bible, or if you read the words on the screen, you might have noticed that the word consolation is capitalized traditionally. And translators do that for a reason, because the word consolation at that time, the time of Christ, was a common way for these expectant Jews to refer to the Messiah. Simeon was waiting. He was waiting for the the consolation of his people, but not just any consolation, He was waiting for the consolation. And of course, what is the opposite of being consoled? Well, it's sadness, isn't it? It's grief. It's mourning. And I think that is just where the faithful in Israel were at the coming of Jesus. They were in grief, in sadness. They were in grief and sadness over the state of their own sin and over the sin of their nation. They were mourning over the state of disarray that they experienced at the time. Now, Simeon knew what was promised, even specifically to him, that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Christ. And in waiting for Jesus, he was waiting 
for the consolation. And we read that only when he knew and saw that he could depart in peace. When that blessed consolation was there, the newborn King Jesus, now he could say, you are letting your servant depart, no longer in sadness and grief, but in peace. This is the kind of mourning that I believe scripture points to in this passage. Simeon was a blessed mourner, a mourner who was consoled. And I'll give you a little head start here. Every person who finds Jesus to be their Messiah, to be the Savior, is a blessed mourner. For we are the mourners who will find consolation in him. Here's kind of the big idea for today. Mourning over sin, evil, and their effects should be a part of every Christian's life. But it's a blessed mourning. It's a mourning with a perfect comfort to follow. We're going to take the same pattern as we did last week in uh, studying this verse And we're going to ask three questions again. What is blessed mourning? What does blessed mourning look like? And what is the good news for the mourners? And uh, I'm going to keep with that pattern as we go through the Beatitudes, so you should be used to it in a few weeks. Firstly, we see what is blessed mourning? What is blessed mourning? When you look at the topic of mourning, the concept of mourning in Scripture, you notice that it is a, a vast and varied topic. Uh, the Bible speaks of mourning with over ten different ways or ten different words, and I think that gives us insight into something. Mourning is a common experience in life. Now, if we take the word that Jesus uses here and simply put a definition to it, it's simple. Mourning is to experience sadness as the result of some condition or circumstance. We get the idea from this word that this kind of mourning isn't just a one-time deal. It's not just a point experience or an immediate reaction. Rather, it's, it's a continued state of mourning because of a continued condition or circumstance. A a literal way to translate this verse is simply, blessed are the mourners. And in that case, Jesus uses a verb as a noun to identify the fact that these people are constantly mourning, so much so that they can be identified as mourners as a title. Now, another way that we can look at mourning is this. Whenever mourning occurs, it's because there is some condition or there is some state that is worse than whatever the perceived norm or standard is. In other words, the mourner sees something arise, something missing, something that is not the way it is designed to be, something that's out of place in a severe enough way that it causes grief, tears of sadness even. So these kind of things define the word mourning, but the question is not simply what is mourning. The question is, what is this blessed mourning that Jesus is speaking of? You see, mourning is commonplace in life. 
nearly every person who has lived any amount of time has experienced mourning to some degree. But remember, what we've learned about these Beatitudes so far is that the blessed life, what Jesus is speaking of here, is not merely a natural experience. The blessed life, the life that is spoken of in the Beatitudes, is not commonplace. It comes from supernatural grace. So the mourning that Jesus speaks of must not be simple, everyday mourning. It must be something significant, something supernatural. Another way of looking at this is mourning, in this sense, must be in opposition to the carefree view of life that comes from relativism. In other words, if nothing really matters, then nothing really matters. But much like the poor in spirit are not just any poor, but those who realize their spiritual poverty, so these mourners are not just any who mourn over anything, but rather they are those who mourn the things that God mourns, those who mourn with spiritual grief, blessed grief, blessed mourning. Consider, for example, the kind of mourning that David exhibited in Psalm 119, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Now again, this is not a natural mourning. Just like in Psalm 1, remember that great psalm, the blessed man was not merely a natural man, but he is one who had come to love the law of God and meditate on it day and night. So here, the blessed mourner is not simply a natural mourner, but one who sheds tears over the breaking of God's standards and the disregard of God's ways. And there's a question about mourning that we can ask here already. What gives us grief? Are we grieved simply over personal losses or personal offenses? Or are we grieved over unrighteousness? In other words, do we long for the day simply when we will be in a better place, when our cause for grief is over? Or do we long for the day when all is made right in terms of God's ways? Consider also Paul's words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7. He says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what an earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Paul is using a lot of descriptive words there to speak of what he calls godly grief. Now, I would encourage you at some point to go back and read the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 7 for the full context. But just to snip it for now, Paul is speaking of that difference between godly grief and godly sorrow and worldly grief and worldly sorrow. That's the difference between contrition, which is what David speaks of, it's what Isaiah speaks of, and attrition. In other words, it's, it's the difference between 
sorrow, grief, and mourning because of God's ways and his standards have, have been broken, and feeling bad because you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Now that's maybe to make light of it, but there is a legitimate difference between actual godly sorrow, godly grief, and just feeling sorry about consequences. Godly grief, or we could substitute our term for today, blessed mourning, is that mourning that is over sin and evil. Now listen carefully. Yes, it is our sin and evil, but it's not only ours. It's also mourning over the wholesale disregard of God's ways, like Simeon, who certainly was waiting for personal consolation in Christ, but he was waiting for the consolation of all of his people so that the blessed mourners are those who are longing and waiting for sin and evil, the breaking of God's law, to cease, both in their hearts, their lives, but also as a general experience. Blessed mourners are jealous over God's law because they are jealous for what God is jealous for. They love God's law because they love God himself. And their mourning then is over God's ways being disregarded, put, put down. And it's not simply our, our personal breaking of God's law, but as we saw in David, as he wrote in Psalm 119, uh, he was crying tears because nobody was keeping God's law. It was totally abrogated. This morning is and can be for personal sin. It can be for the general state of sinfulness. It can also be for the, the very sin nature that we inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it can also be for the effects of sin. In other words, this blessed morning is a morning that looks out and it sees our sin. It sees the sin of the world. It sees the curse and all of its effects. And it cries out to God and says, how long will we be in this condition? Really, mourning is that natural position. It's the natural condition that those who are self-aware of their poverty of spirit and the poverty of spirit that the whole world is in find themselves in. How long, O oh Lord? Now, what does blessed mourning look like? There are many places in Scripture that we could go to to find examples of this kind of godly grief, uh, examples of what this blessed mourning looks like. And we've already seen two. We've seen one in Simeon, and we've seen one in David. I think a couple more will be uh, pretty helpful this morning, because it's not just the lowly and the unknown believers who are mourners in this sense. It is all, even the giants of the faith, giants of the faith like Isaiah and like Paul. So we're going to take those two for just a minute. First, Isaiah. I read from Isaiah 6, starting in verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! 
for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now this passage is interesting to me because Isaiah has a cause in this context for natural mourning. King Uzziah, who by the time of his death was commonly revered as a beloved king, has just died. Naturally, the whole nation would have been in somewhat of a state of mourning. Natural mourning, commonplace mourning. But then Isaiah receives this revelation, this experience, the, the vision of the throne of Yahweh. And the experience was awe-striking in a sense that it drove his mourning far beyond that natural mourning over the king of Uzziah's death to a mourning that perhaps he had never fully experienced before. Holy, 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 the seraphim cried. There was shaking, there was smoke, it was remarkable. But notice Isaiah's reaction to the holiness of God, to this whole experience. Look where his mind goes. Look at his objection to being privileged to receive this vision. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone. And his woe was for two reasons. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. His grief and mourning was personal and corporate all at the same time. Woe in Isaiah because of Isaiah, and woe in Isaiah because of the general condition of his people. Yes, when Isaiah's gaze met a glimpse of the holiness of God, his utter poverty of spirit was recognized, and the response was this holy mourning. Woe is me. He was unclean. His people were unclean. And it didn't matter who else was unclean because when you put it up against the holiness of God, it was all unclean. Do we mourn in this way because of God's holiness? Do we mourn in this way because of our uncleanness, the uncleanness that we dwell in, that the world dwells in? When we're privileged to get a glimpse, just a, a snippet of God's holiness and God's glory, even in the scripture, do we say, well, of course God would reveal himself to me. I'm, I'm one of his creatures. It's only natural that he would give me his benefit. Or do we say, God, I cannot bear this privilege. I am unclean. Woe is me. Woe is me. What about another one, though? Another giant of the faith, the Apostle Paul. Romans 7, 21. I find it to be a law, a condition, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I find myself, myself I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul here says he finds a, a law, a state, a, a condition. Remember our definition of mourning? It's sadness over a condition or a circumstance. Well, Paul here is speaking of the condition where you want to do right, but evil is right there at the door. Do you know that condition? I do. And I think you do as well. Paul says, I delight in the law of God in the inner man. So again, we're not talking about a natural man, but a spiritual man. A spiritual man like the Psalm 1 man who who delights in God's law and meditates in it. But Paul also says in his members, that is, in his flesh, there's a war raging between the flesh and the spirit. Sin still has a a powerful influence over the flesh. Now read the whole chapter of Romans 7 again sometimes. Paul says things like, the good I want to do, I, I don't always do it. The evil that I despise, I often do that. And finally, Paul reaches a crescendo of grief in his experience here, and he says, oh, wretched man that I am. It's like he's saying, why am I stuck here in this evil place? Why am I immersed in this war between sin and the Spirit? And he asks the question, who will deliver me from this? That really is the question of godly mourning. Who will deliver me from this place? We've all mourned over many things, haven't we? We've all mourned for lost loved ones, sick family members, a wretched experience in life. And what in those moments is our first desire, if we're honest? We want the loved one back. We want the sick person healed. We want the wretched experience turned around, made whole again. Can I tell you that that is the cry of godly mourning? It's the plea of the blessed, grief-stricken, poor in spirit. They see the condition of their own lives and of the world. They see the disregard for God and his ways. They see the, the, the circumstances that are wrought with the curse. They see evil, suffering, death, sorrow, heartache that all stems from the cursed world, and they long for the new to come. They cry out, who will deliver me? Uh, My mind goes to to David in uh, Psalm 13, I believe it is, where he's honest before the Lord. And I think we can find a counterpart here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Have you felt that? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. But then David ends the psalm by saying this, I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the same way, Jesus says that these mourners are blessed. They are not just commonplace, natural mourners, because those mourners, listen, those mourners are mourners without hope. They are the blessed mourners. They are in the good way. They are in the good life. They are to be congratulated even in their mourning. Why? What is the good news for the mourners? Well, as Jesus tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They will be comforted. There is hope. There is peace. There is comfort for these mourners. I want to go back again to Isaiah and Paul. Isaiah first in chapter 40. As the whole book of Isaiah turns a corner and he speaks this, this word of prophecy, he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There is a blessed life for the godly mourners, for it's part of God's very plan and design to bring comfort for mourning. What is the comfort for Jerusalem in this prophecy? That the warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort for God's people is very real, both physically and spiritual. And those things go hand in hand. Every heartache and every grief in this life stems in some way from sin and the curse. It either stems from original sin, the, the curse and the state of sin that we inherit from our first parents, Adam and Eve, or it comes as a direct result of some specific evil that we have committed. Yes, there is warfare, but one day it will be totally ended. Yes, one day all will be made new. And the comfort that Isaiah speaks of for Jerusalem is physical, but also spiritual in a huge sense, because the comfort in Isaiah 40 was not just that the war had ended, but that her iniquity is pardoned. There is comfort in forgiveness. There is comfort in atonement, which leads us again to the Apostle Paul when we read the closing words of Romans 7, after Paul bemoans his state, his fighting the war between the spirit and the flesh, he cries out, who will deliver me? And the answer comes back. Jesus can deliver you. And what is the big point that Paul makes right after that chapter? He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, dear one, the greatest cause for godly grief is the general state of condemnation that the world exists in. But Christ has purchased our comfort from that state 
Those who are in Christ Jesus by faith have a cause for their mourning to be comforted. Now, do we still mourn over the fight? Do we still have grief because of the curse and its effects? Do we still see evil in this world? And do we still see disregard for God and his ways? Yes, of course. But our future hope of all things being made new is pictured and brought into the near, the here, and now in the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus Christ of our own sins. Yes, those who mourn shall be comforted, just like Simeon could die in peace because he had seen the consolation of Israel. So the comfort for all of our godly mourning is found in that same person. Consider Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. Do you remember who fulfilled this passage quite specifically? Do you remember who stood up in the synagogue and read the Isaiah scroll and then sat down saying, this day the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing? It's Jesus. He has purchased comfort and given comfort for the blessed mourners. So I ask you today, do you find yourselves with this godly grief, with this godly mourning over sin, over your sin, over, over the world's sin, over the effects of evil? Has God given you a yearning and a jealousy for his ways? Do you grieve when you know that God is grieved? If so, Jesus says, you are blessed. You are in the blessed way. Again, because this is not just natural mourning. Of course, and I don't want to disregard this, there is comfort for all mourning in Christ. But where does all mourning stem from? It stems from what was made to be perfect, being marred and stained. And the comfort is this. Those marks and those stains have been taken on and paid for by Jesus Christ. And while the effects of them still linger for a season, yes, we're still fighting the battle. For those of us in Christ, one day they will all be made new. One day all mourning will cease for us. And I also want to ask you very pointedly, does that promise seem good to you? Do you long for that kind of resolution? If so, then come to Christ. In him, the broken are blessed. In him, the mourners are comforted.